Good morning, everyone. Um, So, as summer gets underway and people are making plans to go to some really cool destinations, I'm not one of those people, okay? Staying in Lubbock this year around because last year was too crazy, okay? But summer is this time that, you know, it's on a lot of people's minds that we want to get away. You want to get away somewhere cooler. Maybe you want to go to the beach. Maybe you want to go to the mountains. Uh, we, we have this thing in our mind. We're thinking about cool destinations, places we want to go. And uh, destination weddings, have you ever thought about those? They've been, uh, uh, they've been in, in, in a la mode, if you will, for several years now, okay? And what's interesting about destination weddings is this, that, that these places that were previously just, um, just dots on a map transform in meaning for the couple that gets married there. Does it not? See, for that couple at least, that place goes from being just a dot on a map to being something completely different. It becomes the place where their lives became entwined and took on new meaning. Really cool idea, okay? Destination weddings, you know, some popular destinations are Hawaii, Cancun, places like that. People go there, but by the time they leave there, their lives have been transformed in a way. Something profoundly significant has happened to them. Uh, But when we look at history as well, okay, we notice some real special destinations there as well. Now, consider the Pennsylvania State House in the late 18th century. Anyone know what happened there? We now know this place as Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution were signed. See, whether for those present at the time of the signing, almost a quarter century ago, or for us today, Independence Hall is more than just a dot on the map, is it not? It's the birthplace of this nation we call home, and this place will forever be remembered for the profoundly significant events that took place there, and the people who were there were forever changed by those events. So these places are not just just, uh, just these places on a map that you look at and that doesn't really mean anything. When you go there, these destinations, you go there, but by the time you leave, something profoundly significant has happened in your life. So what we, what we want to do in this new series called Destinations is explore some really cool destinations in the Bible, places that are more than just dots on the map, but that hold a special significance for our lives as Christians because of what happened there. See, we'll not only survey the events that took place in these places, but we'll also consider what lessons we can learn from there, what we can take away from there. These are places we go, but by the time that we leave each of these places, something profoundly significant will have happened in our lives, and these places will become indelible memories and form an integral part of our story. So, over the next several weeks, we'll fly through the pages of the Bible and make stops at special destinations that hold a special significance to our story as the children of God. And just as we remember events in world history, we'll explore destinations of special events in our spiritual story. But this morning, though, we kick things off in, uh, in an ancient city that exists to this day, okay? Trivia. Um, this is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. It is the oldest capital in the world. It's been ruled by a number of nations throughout history, including the Egyptians and the Romans. 
culturally vibrant, historically significant. Any guesses? Today, we're going to be exploring the city of Damascus, okay? The city of Damascus, the capital of modern-day Syria. See, Damascus was an important cultural, economic, and political center even back in biblical times. See, the earliest mention of Damascus uh, uh, goes back to the late Bronze Age, okay, when the Egyptians uh, controlled a vast amount of territory in what we now call the Holy Land. Control of the city would switch from the Egyptians to the Arameans, then to Israel, back to the Arameans, and then eventually to Rome. But the earliest mention of Damascus in the Bible, okay, in the Bible is when we read about Abram going after his nephew Lot, who has been kidnapped by raiders, right? So Abraham gets together his little mercenary army and goes after Lot to rescue him. Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 14 that, that Abraham uh, attacks those marauders just outside of Damascus, and he brings Lot back home, okay? It's a little depiction of the struggle there. Um, but also we read that in the very next chapter, Abraham's complaint to God is that he doesn't have an heir, he doesn't have anyone to carry on the family name, and that the one that is right now would uh, inherit everything that he has it was his servant Eliezer of Damascus. So those are the earliest mentions of Damascus in the Bible. But we weren't there for those events, obviously, and it's not immediately clear what significance Damascus might have for us because of these stories. Now, they may have meant something to Abraham, but what about for us? Well, today we're going to see Damascus as the place where God shows us our life's true purpose, where He takes us and He redefines us and tells us who we are and what we're all about. We're going to see Damascus as the place where we encounter God and thus find what we're all about. And as you've likely deduced by now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at the story of the conversion of Saul. We're going to examine elements of Saul's Damascus moment, if you will, and see what a profound impact it had on his life. Then we'll consider and reflect how on our own Damascus moments and if we're living in light of going to Damascus. So, see, Paul previously referred to as Saul was a different man before Damascus. He makes the entrance on the biblical scene as a, uh, as a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 8, at the, at the scene of Stephen's martyrdom, okay, that is where we first see him. He is there at the killing of Stephen, and he's endorsing his killing because for Saul, he's going after the church. He's a persecutor of the way of Jesus. He was actually among the earliest persecutors of the church. See, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read that Saul was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. See, he was an expert in Jewish teaching, and he viewed the way of Jesus as a blasphemous challenge to Yahweh, the one true God. And evidently, he saw himself as the defender of what he considered the one true faith, the Jewish faith. So Paul wages war against the church. He's going after them. He's, he is persecuting the church. He is uh, throwing people in jail. And as he advances this campaign of persecution, he expands his scope to include places outside of Jerusalem. And perhaps it's unsurprising that he sets his sights on the renegade Jews in 
Damascus. See, the distance between Jerusalem and Damascus is about the distance uh, between Lubbock and Amarillo, not very far. It was a major city at the time, as we saw. And there were Jews who had uh, ostensibly fled Jerusalem to Damascus, and Paul is not satisfied with that. He's going after them to Damascus. Saul was not just a persecutor of the church. He was the persecutor of the church at the time, and he was proud of this. He was zealous for the things of Yahweh, and he thought that he was doing Yahweh a service. So Saul sets off for Damascus. He's gone to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's gotten letters of extradition from them, giving him permission, giving him authorization to bring back followers of the way, have them stand trial, maybe throw them in jail. But something happens along the way, does it not? Let's read what happened, Acts chapter 9. Verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> a blinding light from heaven shines around him. He falls to the ground. Here's these words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. See, Paul thought he was persecuting the church, did he not? But here he finds out that he's in fact persecuting Jesus. And this is what the Lord tells him. He says, but rise Enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul is blinded by this time. And in his blindness, Paul obeys. He's helped to his destination by his servants. servants. See, Paul was after the church, but he stopped dead in his tracks and now awaits a new assignment from the Lord. Everything that he knew, he thought he knew in life, was challenged. And his life purpose is undergoing a radical transformation. You see, it was Damascus where Paul learned his life's true purpose. And here is his new purpose in Jesus' own words. Let's read in 9, 15, and 16. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow, what an assignment, huh? What a stunning redefinition of Paul's purpose in life. See, Jesus is going to take all of Paul's zeal. He's going to take all of Paul's expertise in Scripture. He's going to take all of Paul's vast network of contacts, and he's going to channel them. He's going to redirect them to accomplish the purposes of his kingdom. He's going to redirect Paul's attention. He's going to redirect Paul's energies so that he fulfills kingdom priorities, so that he's not fighting against Jesus, but that he's living for Jesus. But that's not all. Jesus says something else about this new life that Paul is going to have. Read with me in verse 16. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. Paul will not only carry the name of Jesus to the nations, he will also suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul would say these words. He'd say, I bear branded on my body the scars of Jesus as my master. See, at Damascus, the purpose of Paul's life was redefined. He discovered what his life's true purpose 
was. Him going to Damascus was all about him trying to stop Christianity. That's what he was all about. But Jesus stops him in his tracks, redirects his attention, fundamentally transforms his life purpose. Post-Damascus, Saul is a new creation, isn't he? In fact, in all his correspondence with the churches, pay attention to this, uh, during his ministry, Paul would refer to himself no longer as Saul, but as Paul. His life's purpose post-Damascus is all about living for Jesus. See what this looked like in his life. Starting in verse 20, Acts chapter 9, it says that, and immediately, immediately after his conversion, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Skip with me a verse. says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now that verse that we skipped there is about the people not understanding what's going on. They're confused by what's happened. Not long ago, Saul was the guy coming after them. This guy had gone to the leaders in Jerusalem. He'd gone authorization, permission to persecute them, to come grab them, to jail them. And now he's preaching the name of Jesus? Five minutes ago, he was the enemy of Jesus, and now he's his friend? Five minutes ago, he was the enemy of the church, and now he's an advocate for the church? They didn't get it. They were confounded by it. See, that's the power of the Damascus moment. That's what happens in Damascus. God fundamentally transforms and redefines what we're all about. He took Paul, a murderous persecutor of the church, and made him a friend to the church. Isn't that amazing? He took Paul, a zealous persecutor of the church, made him an advocate and proponent of the church. The same vigor and zeal with which he persecuted the church, well, now he's using to promote and proclaim the name of Jesus. See, if before Damascus, Paul was all about kicking against Jesus, he was all about stopping the church, anything to do with the name Jesus, he wanted stopped. Well, after Damascus, Paul is all about living for Jesus. Whether he is proclaiming him, preaching Jesus, whether he is planting churches, whether he's appointing elders, whether he's preaching to pagan philosophers, Paul's life now, Paul's life after Damascus is all about living for Jesus. And just like Jesus said would happen, he also suffered greatly as he carried out his life's true purpose. He was targeted and attacked by his former comrades. He was betrayed by his friends. He's flogged and shipwrecked and almost stoned to death. And as we know, his life met a brutal end at the hands of the Roman authorities. See, destination Damascus was a pivotal place, not just for Paul, but for the church and the kingdom of God as a whole. The redefinition of Paul's life purpose became a blessing to the kingdom of God. He went from being the church's greatest adversary to becoming arguably its biggest friend and proponent. Destination Damascus was the place where Paul was transformed from a man who was kicking against Jesus to a man who is now living for Jesus in every way.
So whether he was planting churches, preaching, teaching, discipling, his life was now all about living for Jesus. See, Damascus wasn't just a destination for Paul. It's a destination for all of us. We all need a Damascus moment. It's not about a dot on the map. You may never go to Damascus. I certainly don't plan on it. Not exactly the safest city in the world today. I'm not talking about a dot on the map. We're talking about a time, a moment in time, where God reveals to you and reveals to me our life's true purpose. That is Damascus. That is our Damascus moment. Where are you headed? Consider and reflect. Where are you headed? Is your life's purpose in keeping with God's purpose for your life? Or are you, just like Paul was, kicking against what God is trying to do in the world, what God is trying to do in your life? And if it is the latter, I pray that you arrive at Damascus soon, sooner rather than later. I pray that God would stop you dead in your tracks and redefine your life's purpose just as he did for Paul. And maybe your Damascus moment won't be as sensational as Paul's. Maybe it will. But it'll be a sensational part of your story nevertheless. Just like for Paul, what follows our Damascus moment is a decision to live for Jesus. Living for Jesus means that you bear fruits of righteousness. Uh, you can find that in the similar language in different parts of the Bible, but I love Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That's part of what happens when you live for Jesus. You produce these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You produce those things to the glory of God. Living for Jesus means that you put your old self to death, that old self that all it wanted to do was, was satisfy its fleshly pleasures, fleshly desires. You put that to death. Living for Jesus means sharing your faith with other people. Living for Jesus means ordering your life according to kingdom priorities. See, just like Paul thought that his life was all about one thing and God, God uh, changed his perspective on it, God re redefined his purpose for him, when God does that for us, we understand that our life's purpose is all about living for Jesus. So let me ask you this as we conclude. Have you been to Damascus? Has your faith in Jesus been established? Have you decided to live for him by putting him on in baptism? If so, here's a real question. Are you living out your life's true purpose? Are you living in light of the reality that you have indeed been to Damascus? See, when Paul went to Damascus, his life changed, was transformed completely, and it was evident that his life had been transformed completely. It was evident that his purpose in life had been redefined. Is it so evident in your life? If you were to look in the mirror, when you look in the mirror, when others look at you, will they notice that you have indeed been to Damascus? I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I forget that I've been to Damascus. <laughs> I forget that I've had this encounter with God and that my life can never be the same again. 
If you've not been to Damascus yet, though, let this church help you get there sooner rather than later, and let us help you make the decision to live for Jesus. Tell us how we can help you this morning as we stand and sing.